Good evening. How is everyone? Excited, full of faith? Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to see a baptism, and I love uh, hearing the story about God speaking to Andre through his own devotional time, through the Word of God, and it's so encouraging to know that God does speak. And that's the assumption that we have when we're here, that God does speak and that he is going to speak to us as we open his word tonight. And we know that, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do with our evening service is just get out of the way, is just to make space, make room for God to do what he's going to do. And so making room looks like filling the baptismal with water. Um, So if God wants to be prompting anyone here, then, well, you've just got to listen to the Holy Spirit and, and what he tells you to do. We are moving on to the next segment in Acts. So we've been through our first mini-series, which was starting well, the first couple of chapters, chapters 1 and 2, and we're moving into chapters 3 and 4 in our uh, new series called Emboldened. So at the end of our last uh, uh, sermon, the the chapter 2 was kind of like a a summary or a postscript about the overall story of books 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, which was about the coming of the Holy Spirit It's about uh, the the people of God being constituted, the new covenant being consummated, and the believers being uh, brought together. And we saw that the end of that, the result of the coming of the Holy Spirit was this unexplainable unity. And how do you get the Holy Spirit? Well, from Peter's sermon, we know that the two commands that he gave them were to repent and believe. So we repent from our sins. We turn away from a life of running away from God. We turn towards him. And we put our faith in Jesus. We put our trust in him, which means that we believe everything that he said about his son, everything that Jesus has done, and we invite him into our life as both Lord and Savior. And so we receive the Holy Spirit. And then uh, chapters 3 and 4 continue this, this story of the church in its new form and the presence of the Holy Spirit being something that emboldens the disciples to do things that previously were strange, odd, didn't make sense. And you couldn't really explain them unless you understood the, the, the new life, the Holy Spirit that was inside the disciples. And so for chapters 3 and 4, we've, uh, we're bouncing, well, actually, at the, the end of chapter 2, verse 43, which I didn't even mention last week because I knew I was going to mention it today, said that um, the, everybody was filled with awe and wonder at all of the disciples all of the miracles, the wonders and signs that the disciples were doing. And so that actually sets up chapters 3 and 4. So chapters 3 and 4 is an example of one of these wonders and signs, a miracle. We see that a lame beggar who was lame from birth is going to get healed. There's a spoiler for you. And that sets up the narrative of chapters 3 and 4. And if you were to look at chapters 3 and 4, kind of the main biblical theme that's, that comes out of there is actually the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, because this miracle is done in the name of Jesus. And then uh, when they do the miracle, it actually gets the, the disciples into a bit of trouble, and uh, the Pharisees drag them in for, for questioning, and they start to ask them, you know, in whose name are you doing all of these miracles? And they're like, well, in case you didn't hear the first time, it's in the name of Jesus, And then uh, it's not unexpected for there to be opposition when miracles start happening because we see that in Jesus' ministry. Whenever he did a miracle, it uh, brought the skepticism and the opposition of the the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And just as a side note, if you find yourself, your default position is skepticism when it comes to miracles, 
then uh, your crew, the, the people you can most relate to in uh, the New Testament is actually the Pharisees. I'll just leave that one there. Um, but the, the Pharisees say, don't speak anymore in this name, in the name of Jesus. And the disciples were like, well, we just have to do it. We can't not do it. They're emboldened to do that. So we might say that these couple of chapters are kind of like a Luke is presenting the argument that Jesus, who a couple of months ago was walking around uh, this area, uh, ordinary carpenter's son, well, everyone knew there was something extraordinary about him, but he was a, a carpenter's son. He, that guy whom you all saw and know, his name is now being lifted up to the name that is above all names, the highest, the name of Jesus. And the disciples are emboldened because they know that they are on this mission through the power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. And let me tell you that what Andre did just now is being a witness of Christ, is demonstrating through practice the change, the internal change that God has brought in his life because of the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And so church, our job hasn't changed. 2,000 years later, we are to still be witnesses of Jesus Christ. That is why we're here. That is why our church exists, is to lift up the name of Jesus. It's why when we sing, we sing about Jesus. And why when we come and as we open the word of God, we understand that it's actually the living Jesus that we want to speak to us tonight. So there's one more question left to ask before we get stuck in, and that is, what do we do with a miracle passage? How do we look at a passage that is a clear and dramatic miracle? Because it's possible to look at the passage and become obsessed with, well, how does this miracle work? And isn't that powerful? And isn't that wonderful? And how can we do the same thing? How can we be uh, people who go around and just see the miraculous, you know, like we're superheroes and, and we've figured out the formula and, and, and that's awesome. Uh, but that misses the point that the, the, the point of the passage is the name of Jesus. But we could also come and look at this and go, well, I'm so glad that that miracle was there and God really did profound things in such a primitive society as, as first century Roman Palestine. But that's there for our encouragement, not for our uh, example, not for our replication. And that actually misses the point that this passage is about faith. And what we're looking at tonight and, and what I feel is the emphasis for us tonight, and uh, I, I believe that the Holy Spirit confirmed that this morning because, because Pat literally preached on the same thing. I was hearing him and going, well, <laughs> I don't need to preach tonight. It's, it's the same thing. So if you're here this morning, uh, get prepared to have those. If, if God's been doing something in your heart, he's going to be knocking on the same door. And the, the longer I go as a Christian, I've, I've been on a bit of a journey when it comes to my understanding of faith. And the more I, I grow as a Christian, the more I believe that, that faith and a, a proper dynamic understanding of what faith really is, is absolutely critical to the life of a healthy Christian. The life of, of a Christian that, that feels uh, empowered, like they can walk in God's power, like they can overcome the things that are around them, and like they have the peace and the presence of God in their life. Faith is this critical factor. And we see in Ephesians uh, 1 verse 8, it says, For by grace you are saved through faith. That's like saying, uh, by water you nourish your garden through the hose. Right? It's the life of Jesus that brings nourishment to that garden and to the ground, but it's the hose which is the conduit for that life. And so uh, it's, it's like our neck. If we don't have a neck of faith, the blood doesn't get pumped up to the head, right? So faith is this conduit that brings the life and the vitality of Jesus into a particular aspect of our life. 
And so our point tonight, the aim here that I hope is for us to come alive in our faith and to think about maybe there are some areas, maybe some dry, maybe some barren areas of our life, places where there are no, there's no victory, where there's no peace, where there's no joy, and to, to realize that, well, maybe we need to direct the hose of faith, the conduit of faith into that area. What does faith look like in that particular part of my life? And how can I welcome God's work and invite his, his vitality into that space? So that's where we are going. So let's read. If you've got your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 3. The words will be on the screen. Uh, but if you've got something to put in front of you, that's also wonderful. Acts chapter 3 from verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Now, Peter and John are on their way to the temple, and as we saw at the end of the last chapter, they did this every day. We're in this kind of phase of the Christian church where there's it's kind of a revivalistic time. They're, they're going every day to the temple. They're spending time together. They're, they're devoting themselves to prayer and to the apostles' teaching and to uh, breaking of bread together and all of the aspects of worship. And so they're doing their daily custom. They're, they're going in for these prayers and they're passing this beggar who is there at the beautiful gate. And Luke is keen to give us some of these details because the beautiful gate is, is a real place. It was a, a gate that was literally brilliant it was, it was brass, and so it shone so directly in the sun, and the other uh, ancient authors tell us that it was more splendid than something you know, covered in silver or gold, which is why it's called the beautiful gate. And so this beggar, notice that he's, had, he's there every day. He's taken there every day, and he has to be taken by his friends. And I assume he's probably got pretty good friends because he's kind of got the sweet spot. He's got the spot you want to be. If you are a lame beggar and you are begging from people, that's where you want to be. He's get all the religious traffic on their way through to the temple every day. I mean, it's like targeted advertising. I spend a lot of time like watch, watching like worship videos and stuff on, on YouTube. And if, has anyone else noticed that those are the videos that get you like the, here's this terrible story of, you know, this person in some third world country who needs your help. It's like that targeted advertising. Well, this, this beggar has basically like mastered search engine optimization for a first century um, Palestine. Sign him up for your, for your marketing business. But here is an interesting concept, right? Here's an interesting idea. Because we hear later on in chapter four that this man was more than 40 years old, that he was lame from birth. He's never walked, he's never tried to walk. He spent his whole life begging, being a, being a beggar. And he's there every day. So he's got a reputation. Everybody's seen him. Everybody knows him. He may as well have had the name, the ugly beggar at the beautiful gate. Whether or not he was ugly, I don't know. But maybe that's what society thought about him. But have you thought about the fact that a couple months prior to this, who would have been walking by on his way to the temple but Jesus himself? And this beggar would have been there and Jesus would have walked past he may have even asked for alms from Jesus. Did Jesus not have compassion on him? Why did his healing not come then? Did Jesus not have the power to heal him at that moment? Well, the first point for us tonight 
is that healing is in God's timing because it fits within God's story. Of course, Jesus had compassion on this man as he saw him. Of course, he had the power to heal. But this man wasn't healed when Jesus was walking by because his healing was to fit in a different spot in God's story. God had the bigger picture sorted, and his healing was to play a part in the birth and the growing and uh, the early days, the formation of the church. And so this is a difficult thing for us to sort of wrestle with. Because sometimes healing happens instantly, and sometimes healing happens over a period of time, and sometimes healing doesn't happen at all. I was driving home from a Bunnings trip recently. I'd been moving some uh, timber out in the sun in a trailer, and on my way home, I was beginning to get uh, an aura for a migraine. Those of you who get migraines know what that's like, so I had uh, you know, tightness and, and pain in my neck. There was, there was pressure uh, building behind my eyes. And it was at the point where I was not, I was not thinking properly, where my thoughts was, you know, you, you struggle to sort of put sentences together in that situation. And so I called back as I was driving home and I was explaining, hey, this is, this is how I'm feeling. This is what's going on. And anyway, after that, as I was driving home, I just suddenly felt for, for no reason that uh, actually I can think clearly again. I can put sentences together in, in my head and, and that seems to have gone. And I was like, God, was that you? Because it wouldn't put it past my wife to be praying for me after I'd let her know. And so I was like, oh, well, God, look, if, if that is you, would you mind also just taking away the pressure behind the eyes? And then it went away, straight away. I was like, oh, okay, maybe this is happening, right? Okay, well, God, uh, there's still a bit of tightness, still a bit of pain in the neck. Can you take that away as well? And it went away. Straight away. And normally, an aura is like, you know, take a paracetamol, go and lie down right off the rest of the day. You've got to sleep it off. But for the rest of the day, I was totally fine because God healed uh, in that instant. And yet, when I was sharing that story with somebody else, they were, they were happy for that instance. But at the same time, it brought up feelings of frustration because that person had been struggling with health conditions for a long time that God was not healing, that had not gone away. God had the power to heal it in an instant, but he didn't. Why? Well, I think every circumstance is different, and in that situation, healing is coming. It's coming slowly. It's coming over time, and it's also coming with work. And I think that that does happen sometimes. Sometimes God actually requires us to partner with him to bring the healing into a situation. And that is because God, God knows everything that's going on. Right? And he's not after just curing necessarily a physical ailment, but often there are social, emotional issues connected to the way that your body is behaving uh, and you know, perhaps even relational things. And, and you know, th this is way out of my depth, but talk to Caleb and Linda and, and they will tell you uh, all of this stuff, that God works healing with your whole person. God is more interested in your healing bringing wholeness than it is bringing uh, you know, restoring ability in a, in a temporary sense. And so God's healing can be instant and God's healing can be gradual. And often the people who go through those stories, who've gone through a gradual healing, will, will be frustrated through the process and they'll get to the end and they'll look back and they'll go, you know what, God, I'm actually glad that that happens because of the work that you did in my life and who you made me to be through that process. You see, God looks at the bigger story and God can see that the healing that is coming 
is better for his kingdom than what we see in the moment. But sometimes healing doesn't happen. And what do we do with that? If you suffer with, with chronic illness, and, and most of us uh, you know, know somebody close to us that suffers with, with chronic illness, why is God not healing that? And it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing to deal with. And we know, and we are comforted by this truth as Christians, that actually we are all headed to the day when we will be whole and we will be free from all disease and we will be with God with our new body. And so if that healing is not coming now and it's not coming gradually, it is coming one day when we go to be with him. And so the question for us to be asking is not will God heal or is God able to heal, but the question to ask is do I have the faith? Do I have the faith that God could heal this in an instant? And the kind of faith that says, even if God doesn't, I'm going to trust that he's working something deeper, that he's doing something that I can't see, and that this is going to play a bigger part in his story, in the bigger picture. And let us not forget, church, that this man was lame from birth, and he had suffered for more than 40 years with this condition. It was part of his life, part of his identity. 40 years! It had taken him to deal with this. And how long did it take God to fix it? A matter of seconds. A matter of seconds. Because that's how powerful the God is that we serve. Our second point is the most valuable thing you have is faith in Jesus. And let's read on from verse 3. It says, When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And I want to just point out a couple of moments that are happening in this miracle. And maybe we could go back to the start of that, uh, maybe verse 3, just to have a look at that. Because... There's a moment where they make eye contact, and it's quite richly described in in the language, right? The ESV translates it as they fixed their gaze upon him. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with what it feels like to walk past somebody who's trying to solicit something or somebody who who is a beggar who is begging for things, but the last thing that you do is make eye contact because that establishes an awkwardness. It establishes an expectation And I think that that goes two ways, because you know that if you make eye contact with him, then there's this expectation that you've you've got to uh, give, and and then that you you look like a stingy person if you don't. But I think that it goes both ways, because the person who is begging, if they do make eye contact, it's, it's not sincere eye contact. It's not the deep contact that they know, because they know that they're going to see the pity in your eyes. They know that they're going to see their condition and and the effect that it has on other people. 
But Peter and John walk past this guy and they fix their eyes on him and they say, look at us. I want you to look, give us eye contact. And at that moment, they saw this man and God saw this man. And can I say that God sees you? That if you have a condition that you've been too embarrassed to to talk about, doesn't have to be a physical condition, if there's a problem or a situation that you're not willing to make eye contact about, so to speak, not willing to open up or let anyone else know about because you don't want to see the, the pity in their eyes. God sees you. God sees that situation and he wants you to see him because the solution for that situation is going to come when you stare your creator in the face and he says, I love you and I'm doing something about this and I need you to come with me. I need you to have faith. And so they make this this eye contact. And there's another moment in this miracle where Peter says, he, he says something incredibly bold, incredibly bold. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have to you, what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then he, he reaches out his hands and he lifts the lame beggar to his feet. Now that is a risky thing to do. That is a risky thing to do because I'm not sure. What's going to happen? If, if he's pulling him up and nothing happens, this guy's never walked in his life. He's just going to crumple to the ground and everyone's going to be looking at him like, Peter, what did you do? There's a video going around of a, a young girl at a martial arts class and she's got no arms. And she's doing this break the, the timber with her heel thing and there's an instructor there who's encouraging her, you can do it, you can do it. She stomps and then she breaks through it and just ex- instinctively the instructor goes, high five. And then he goes, oh, you can feel the embarrassment, right? And I'm sure that that guy, like, remembers that moment at least once a week. But that's the same situation that Peter's putting himself in here. Imagine if that had gone wrong. What possesses Peter in this moment to have the confidence, to have the boldness to reach out and actually lift that man up? What possesses him to do that. Now, in order to answer that question, we actually need to answer another question, which is that Peter says, I don't have silver or gold, but I am going to give you something. What is it that he has? What does Peter have that he is going to give to this man? Is it new ankles? It doesn't really make sense. Is it healing? It doesn't really make sense. I was scratching my head over this question. What, what is it that Peter has? You know, at, at the point where Pat was like, Sandy, you're overthinking it. But I'm glad I did overthink it because something incredible unlocked in this passage when I realized what it was. Because we see in verse 16 of chapter 3, it says, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. And so what Peter actually had at that moment was faith. He said, I'm going to give you the faith that I've got that you can be healed. And it is faith in the name of Jesus. And notice how verse 16 is worded, because it says that it is Jesus' name. That's the power. It is faith that comes through Jesus. And so the faith that you have is actually Jesus giving that faith to you to begin with. And so I believe that in this moment, Peter's not acting out of presumption, but he actually has the gift of faith. And there are people in this room who know what that's like. 
who've seen God work through the gift of faith, that in a moment you just suddenly are so convinced that God is going to heal, God's going to do something, God's going to do a miracle, and you have that gift of faith, and that's come from Jesus, and it's for Jesus, but also it is for this other person. Because let me tell you that Peter could not have lifted up that man by himself. Peter could not have done that physical process on his own. Has anyone ever tried to wrestle a toddler against their will into a car seat? Right? You cannot do that if, without significant effort if the toddler is wanting to resist you or to, to change, to even get them dressed. Right? Try putting on that shirt. Well, that's clearly the wrong color green, Daddy. How did you get that wrong? It's very difficult. Or even worse, when they decide to become a rag doll, then you're cooked. They give the fireman special training to deal with that situation. And we've got to just somehow figure it out as parents. But you see, Peter could not manage that physical process himself. He could not pull that man up to his feet unless at some point that man began to try himself. Unless at some point that man began to believe that his ankles were going to be made strong. He had never walked in his life, 40 years being living as a beggar. What was it about Peter's stare, about Peter's words, about the hand reaching out to him that made this man suddenly think, I'm going to be healed? Because the faith came from the action as he read. Uh, as he reached out, well, I don't know if it came from the action. Maybe it came from the words. Maybe it came from his stare. I don't know. I can't explain that to you. But what's happening here is that Peter is giving the man faith. And the most valuable thing that we have is faith in Jesus. Can you see it in that passage? He says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And there are two incredible truths that come out of this process, right? They come out of him passing on that faith. The first one is that faith produces faith. Faith produces faith. And I can't explain this to you, but somehow when you come with faith, you can give that faith to other people, right? So we were worshiping at a, a, at a gents camp, which is a, a young men's ministry that I run. We were in our worship time, and during the worship, one of the leaders got healed from an injury that he'd had a, a day or two prior his arm was in a sling, and we'd sent him off to the doctor. We'd had some scans, and he said, you're not going to be able to use your arm for a few weeks while this settles down. And he was in excruciating pain every time he tried to get it above his shoulder. And this is a strong young man who literally vomited out of the pain of having his arm manipulated in, into that position. But he was in the worship time, and somebody said, can I pray for your shoulder? And then he said, yes, and he prayed, and then instantly he was healed. And let me tell you, those hands were in the air. From that moment on, they were in the air praising God. Not only that, he came up to the side of the stage and he's like, I need to just tell you something. This is in the middle of the worship set. And he comes up and we're like, go ahead, <laughs> tell the story. And they told of, of how he had been healed in that moment. I tell you, the faith in the room just went right up, right? Because faith produces faith. And we actually broke away at that moment and we said, all right, God's doing something. We don't know what it is, but we need to just try and get on board with what God's doing. If you need healing, get to somebody next to you and just pray together and see what God does. And in that space, we had nine other people get you know, confirmed with, with some type of healing. I saw a guy who had a scar on his toe. He'd, split his, he'd cut his toe open. And as we prayed, I watched half of that scar disappear and close over. Right? It's incredible. Faith 
produces faith. And it's the same. And you know, one thing I really love is, is in our services, when we come and we have kind of a huddle as a, as a team beforehand, the prayer team sort of comes and says, you know, we've been praying over this service and this is what we feel God is saying. And I'm always so encouraged by that word. And I tell you that they come with faith and that just boosts the faith of everything going on. And so when we come to a church service, we come expectant, right? We should be. We should be coming expectant. We should be bringing our faith because your faith is not just for you. It's for everybody else around you, right? You can lift the faith in the room. You can bring the faith for other people who are maybe struggling, who are maybe struggling to bring that trust and that faith to see God do something and to do something miraculous. So that's the first thing is that faith produces faith. The second incredible thing about this is that the proof of the Spirit is in the completion of the acts. The proof of the Spirit is in the completion of the work. You cannot know that the Spirit is blessing an action until it is done, not a moment sooner. And so faith is a bridge between when the moment is unknown and when it's undeniable. Faith is what is required to get you from this could happen to God's done something. That is where faith comes in. And it's why James says that faith without works is dead. That's not a faith at all. You can't have faith if it's not resulting in some kind of action, some kind of activity. I used to always try and tell my students in high school because uh, a lot of them got told, you know, you're, you're a man of potential. You've got, you've got potential to, to do stuff with your life. And I used to kind of counter that, and I would say, you know what potential means? Absolutely nothing. Because what's the difference between a C student who has no potential and a C student who has the potential to get an A? Nothing. There is no difference until that C student works their butt off to get the A that their potential warrants. And it's the same with faith. What's the difference between someone who has faith and someone who doesn't? Absolutely nothing until one person acts on it, until they're willing to stretch out the hand to pick up that beggar and say, in the name of Jesus, walk. What's God asking you to have faith about tonight? What's God asking you to do as a result of that faith? You know, I think this is a helpful question for, for all of us when we feel that maybe God is inspiring us to believe, to have faith for something, whatever it is. We'll ask the next question, okay, God? How can I demonstrate this faith? What can I actually do that's going to bring this faith into reality? Maybe it's as simple as reaching out a hand. Maybe it's as simple as walking over to somebody and saying, you know, can I pray for you or can I pray for, I see your shoulders in a sling? I don't know. I don't know. What does that look like? Think, how can I act upon this faith that I believe that God is giving me? Because the proof of the Spirit is in the completion of the work. And that's a bit scary, is it not? Right, God's asking for faith. He's asking us to do bold things that don't make sense. But then once they're done, we look back and go, glad I did that. <laughs> it's like the story Pat told us this morning of the guy that God prompted to give his house away. If you weren't here, there was a story where there was a young man who had a young family and he was told to give his house away. No, no. Attachments, no conditions, just give it away. And it wasn't until he did that that God actually started to come in with uh, even more blessing after that. So we're talking about miracles, and honestly, I'm out of my depth. There are people here with much more experience in seeing what that looks like. But you know what I can tell you for certain is that God still does them. God is still able 
and that we should be seeing this in the church. And I don't know, how's your faith tonight? Maybe God's going to do something. Maybe God's going to perform some kind of uh, miracle for us tonight. We need to be expectant. We need to be ready. So that's point two. Point three, he expected mercy, but he received a miracle. And this man is begging alms from these people, and alms are money, food, provisions, things that he needs to manage his condition but not to solve it, right? So what he was expecting, he was hoping to be able to manage his condition but not to cure it. And you know that what we ask from God reveals a couple of things. It reveals what we think the real problem is. It reveals what we think the solution is. And it reveals what we believe the limitations of God are. So what are you asking for from God? And what does it reveal about those things? Because he was asking for silver or gold, and his primary problem was actually to agree with God about his diagnosis and to not come expecting mercy but to expect a miracle. And we are just the same. We are just the same as this man because we come and we ask for things that are only ever going to temporarily solve the problem. But what actually needs to happen is we need to change our minds to agree with God about the diagnosis. What is the problem here? What is the need? And what can God do about it? Because God is looking to meet the deepest need, not the one that we think is the most important. This man thought that temporarily relieving his poverty was what he needed, but God said to him at that moment, Two things, and I wonder, have you been asking something from God? Is there something that's always on your prayer list that you've been bringing before him? And has God not answered it? Has it stayed there for too long? Do you feel like Jesus has passed you by and shown neither his compassion nor his power? Well, just like this man, God is saying to you two things. The first thing is your needs are far greater than you think. Your needs are far greater than you think. Because we come to God begging for silver or gold and we say, you know, I I just need enough money for for this set of bills or or for this venture or for this idea or this thing that I want to do. And and God, if you are able to just give me enough money to, to do that, then I can take care of the rest. I'll be fine if you can just supply that. Or you think, God, I just need this, this healing. I just need this to go away. I just need this type of health to be restored. And then once that's done, well, then I can get on with my life and I can work and I can do good things and, and I'll be fine. Or we think, you know, God, I just need this relation, relational, you know, fracture to, to be solved for me to be able to, to move forward. And, and then after that, I will be okay. Because you see, we come begging for silver or gold, but God says, you don't need that. You need a miracle. Because if you were to receive that and that alone, you might be away from the beautiful gate for a day, for a week. For a month, but you were going to be back there begging at some stage. God says, I'm working on the issue that is going to mean you don't have to come back to this gate to beg. So the first thing that God says is your needs are far greater than you think. And the second thing he says is that they're the needs I'm working on. They are the needs that I'm working on. I'm working to solve the deepest needs. You think that you need mercy, but you really need a miracle. And I'm convinced that this deepest need is faith. 
I'm convinced that what we need is a faith that says, I believe God can solve this right now through a miracle in this moment, but even if he doesn't, and even if the rest of my life is a struggle with this one thing day after day, I will still trust that God is good. And this struggle is only going to cause to increase my faith because every day that goes by where my perceived need isn't met is a day where I know God is forming me to address the deeper need. He's giving me the grace to persevere. He's giving me the experience to empathize with those who suffer so that I can point them to Christ too. He's teaching me that I don't need my life to be going well for me to love God, and I don't need my life to look like I want it to in order for God to be loving me. God is working to meet a deeper need. And so if you have something that you are praying for, well, ask God to show you what is the deeper need. The question is, are you going to have faith? Are you going to have faith in that situation? Because remember that faith is the conduit for the life and vitality of Jesus. And so if that is an area of your life that is dry and barren and difficult, what does it look like to bring faith into that situation? What does it look like to pour the the hose of faith into that area? To trust God. There's one other thing that we cannot fail to observe in this passage, and that is that all of us, spiritually speaking, are beggars. That we come to God, every one of us, to church at some point in our life, begging for silver or gold. We think we can make up the difference through, I can just be good, I just want my good to outweigh my bad. Or I just want you know, a bit of help in this area, and other than that, I'll, I'll be all right. Or we believe that we dedicate ourselves to a, a particular philosophy of kindness or openness or, or acceptance or toler, uh, tolerance. Or you know, we, we follow some other God in, in the desire or, or you know, the, the thought that you know, that God just suits me a bit more. I think that I like the way that that personality of that God works but the problem is every single one of those things is, is only ever, at best, going to be a temporary fix. And God is saying that spiritually, every single one of us suffers from a disease called sin, which means that we are not capable of righteousness in ourselves. We are not capable of what gets us to be with God on our own. And so we actually need to change our mind about our diagnosis and agree with God that we need Him to step into our life. And look, if that's you this evening, if you know that You need to get right with God, that spiritually uh, you need to ask for that miracle, then God wants to give it to you tonight. I promise you that if you make that decision and you choose to follow Christ, then he will enter into your life. That's one prayer he will never, ever not answer. (laughs) Jesus, come into my life. And if that is you, then after the service, I'm just going to be down there near where Liam is, and I would love to to speak to you if, if that is what God is doing in your heart. I just want to invite the the band up as we look at our final point tonight. So our first point was healing is in God's timing because it fits within God's story. Our second point was the most valuable thing that you have is faith in Jesus. Thirdly, this man expected mercy, but he received a miracle. And then finally, we need to fan the flame of our faith. That's what we're here to do tonight. And I want you to remember that hose, that the faith is the conduit of the life and the vitality of God coming into a particular area 
of your life. So what is it in your life that's dry and barren, an area of life that you know there's been no victory in, there's been no peace, there's been no presence and power of God? What does it look like to put faith into that situation? What does it look like to trust God in a more radical way than you have been before? Remembering also that the difference between someone who has faith and who doesn't have faith is nothing until the person with faith acts. So what does it look like for you to act in faith? You know, we're all going going through struggles of, of various proportions and in different spheres of our life. What does it look like for you to actually do something practical that says to God through your actions and also says to yourself, you know what, I believe God for this. You know, maybe it looks like putting the, the spreadsheet, the budget away and saying, God, I've done my best and the rest is up to you. Maybe it's about just reaching out to that relationship that's broken and saying, hey, I'd love to to catch up, don't know what God's going to do. Or maybe it's a step of faith moving into a new journey or or a new open door and and you don't know whether God wants you to to move in that direction. Maybe it's just taking a step forward into that. Maybe your practical step of faith is as simple as walking over to the prayer team tonight and saying, I believe God can do something about this situation. Maybe God's calling you to get baptised. And we're not going to get in the way of that. If that is you, then same place, come up and talk to to me and Liam. We would love, we would love to do that with you. You know, fanning into flame our faith requires us to not focus on the miracle and not be dependent on the outcome, but to look at the God of the miracle. Because remember, the point of this whole thing is the name of Jesus. And our faith is built upon the firm foundation of who he is, who he says he is and what he's done, that he is a good God and that he loves us and that he is able. 